Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think most of the kids got coloring pages and crayons. If you didn't, there's some at the back table there. So feel free at any point, kids, if you'd like to do that. Uh, We're glad to have you in the service with us today. It's been a really great journey in this Advent season with the character of Mary. The premise of this series has been that we as Protestant Christians so often relegate Mary to a mere vessel for the Christ child and then forget about the rest of her story. We don't tell the fullness of Mary's story. But as we've seen in the last month, and it's made a great impression upon me as I've studied it, Mary is a model for us, a model of response to God, a model of faith, a model of obedience, a model of what it means to have a lifelong journey with Jesus. She is an exemplar. She is a first ballot addition to the cloud of witnesses. She is someone who is worth following. So we're going to follow her for a couple more weeks. Today we're going to look at Mary and Joseph, their dedication of Jesus in the temple. Next week we're going to finish our series by looking at the one story that the Bible gives us of what Jesus was like as a junior hire and uh, how his parents dealt with him. So let's turn our attention to the story of the dedication of Jesus. It was read for us. Luke in this passage presents five events in Jesus' very early life, in very rapid succession. If you, if you blinked, you might have missed it. Five events, circumcision, naming, purification, presentation, consecration. Those are the five events that are listed in this passage. And Luke speaks about them so matter-of-factly that we who are so far removed from some of these practices can easily gloss over them or just not notice them. It's like he speeds through a first century Jewish grocery list and we kind of understand the ingredients on the list, but not really. So I want to I just speed through these five different things quickly so that we can understand them. The first one, if you go back one slide there, Reuben. Um, the first one is circumcision. That happened on the eighth day. That's prescribed in the law in Leviticus chapter 12. And circumcision was the sign of the people of God. We're not going to get into the fullness of that, that sign of the people of God. But the law calls for this on the eighth day, that that's when this happens. And Mary and Joseph are faithful to that. They're faithful to the law in that. Scholars are not really sure why They waited until the eighth day to name Jesus. There's nothing in the law that says that the naming has to happen on the eighth day. But clearly, what's happening here is they're being faithful to what the angel has told each of them independently. Gabriel told them, you are to name this child Jesus. He said that to Joseph. He said that to Mary. And here they are saying, we're going to be faithful to that. We're going to be faithful to what the angel told us. The third is the purification process. And this is for Mary. It's, uh, it's, it's prescribed, again, in the law in Leviticus chapter 12. There was a time of ritual uncleanliness for any mother who uh, had just birthed a child, where she was unable to enter the temple, she was unable to have physical contact with other people who were clean at that time. And we know from Leviticus that this period was a total of 33 days starting at the day of circumcision. So, it was 40 days after the birth that Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem 
to, first of all, for this rite of purification and then the presentation and the consecration. Here's what Leviticus 12 says. When the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring the pre- to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb that's in its first year for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. The husband shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf, and then she shall be clean from her flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. If she can't afford a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement on her behalf, and she shall then be clean. Well, Luke tells us in this text that they brought a pair of two turtle doves and a pigeon. This is a sign that they were faithful to the law to bring this sacrifice, but also a sign that what? They're not very wealthy, right? This is all that they could afford. The sacrifice is made and then Mary is pure to go into the temple to finish these last two events. As to the presentation, there's a bit of mystery as to what exactly is meant by presentation. There's nothing in the law that talks about the need to present a child. But Luke seems to be favoring echoes of the priest, Samuel, who was given or or presented to the Lord for special service to him at a young age. And then lastly, consecration. That is mandated. It's mandated in Exodus chapter 13, where the firstborn males of every household were commanded to be consecrated in the temple. Five events, rapid succession that Luke goes through very quickly. All in all, what is Luke doing here? He's presenting Mary and Joseph as being faithful to the law, obedient to God, and humble in their means. Now this level of ritualism, of of ritual, might seem a little foreign to us. But to Luke, the religious obedience of Mary and Joseph was important enough to to mention these things, but not remarkable or, or outstanding enough to elaborate on the details. It's almost like this is what was expected of those who are following the law. And this is what Luke really screams through this text. Mary and Joseph are religiously devout people. They're devout in terms of their religion. Now let me ask you a question. Is that something that you would want people to say about you? That person is really religiously devout. Are those the words that you would choose? My guess is probably not, right? We were just downtown yesterday as a, as a family enjoying time in, in Chicago. It was nuts. It was crazy. And of course, you see some street evangelists holding some, some posters that I had to kind of shield my kids from a little bit, right? About condam- condemnation and, and hell and fire and brimstone and all these kinds of things. When I think of religiously devout, that's kind of where my mind first goes. Maybe you too. Fanatical, perhaps. Perhaps there's a reason that we have a tough time identifying with this religious devotion in our 21st century mindset. And that reason is because religiosity is actually on the decline. You probably heard it before on the TV, on the radio, maybe friends and neighbors that I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you heard that? I'm, I'm, I'm very spiritual, I'm just not religious. The Barna Group, uh, the preeminent research organization for trends in the church and American religion, has seen a major spike in this sentiment in American religion. They've actually created two categories of people who fit into this sentiment. The first group they call spiritually irreligious. Those, those are people who don't identify with any existing religion, 
but have some sense of God in their life and would say that they are spiritual in the way that they live their lives. Group number two is called love Jesus, just don't love the church. That's what they call that one. Those who identify as Christians but rarely if ever go to church. Both of these groups call God uh, more of an internal personal experience for them. Their faith is, is personal to them. It's often experienced best in nature, uh, through a healthy lifestyle or a yoga class, that kind of thing. Essentially, what both groups have done is they've eliminated religious experience and devotion completely and made it something that's internal. They would not want to be called religiously devout, right? This is a major change in our culture, even in my lifetime. Once synonymous, these words religious and spiritual have now come to describe seemingly distinct but sometimes overlapping domains of human activity. The Barner Group suggests that there are two factors that have really led to this, this sentiment, and it's the twin cultural trends of deinstitutionalization and individualism. Let me unpack that just a little bit. The first is a suspicion of institutions. We see that all over the place. Suspicion of institutional life, whether it's the church or, or schools or administrators, those kinds of things, it's at an all-time high. And the church as an institution has had its fair share of negative press highlighting poorly behaved pastors or church leaders. Individualism is also at an all-time high. A sense that we as individuals can determine our own future all on our own, within ourselves. I've experienced both of these as a pastor. I've been in conversations where people find out that I'm a pastor, that I work in a church, and I can begin to watch them back away from the conversation very slowly, right? As quickly as possible, clearly suspicious of the church. I've also seen the hyper-individualism displayed regularly in our culture, even to the point of people saying things like, I don't like it when the church tells me what to do. <laughs> but the truth is, many have moved spiritual practice away from the public rituals of institutional church, Christianity, to the private experience of God within me. Contrast this to Mary and Joseph, who were fastidious in their religious devotion. They were law-keeping. They were pedantic in their religious ritual. That is very foreign to us, most of us. We tend to minimize religiosity in favor of a more personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill all these laws that we're talking about, right? I mean, after Jesus' perfect, perfect sacrifice on the cross, there's no longer a need for animal sacrifices, right? The rituals of, of circumcision and naming and presentation and, and consecration, they get superseded by, by Jesus and his grace, right? We're no longer under the yoke of, of the law and we live in grace, correct? We don't have to go to church to experience God because God is near to us and we can experience him just as well at home or, or on a walk or around a cup of coffee, right? What we need is, is Jesus. That needs to be the focus and all the other stuff, those are just kind of add-ons, correct? Well, yes, those things are right, but the conclusions are not. The Barner Group has found in their research that not surprisingly, those who are classifying themselves as spiritual but not religious feel increasingly disconnected from God. They are less likely to engage in spiritual practices like prayer or scripture reading. They are more likely to experience loneliness 
and hopelessness. Yes, Jesus is the main thing, but even with Jesus at the center of our life, it doesn't release us from this idea of religious devotion. Do we really believe that once Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended that Mary disregarded religious devotion? It's hard to imagine that that's the case. And Jesus himself didn't tell the apostles that now that they had received him and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that they can just live with their own sort of private understandings of faith as long as it's good for them. That's not what he says. No, he commissions them to build a religious institution, which we call the church. I think the deinstitutionalization of the church and this sort of hyper-individualism that we see is not actually about most churches and what they're doing right or wrong. It's more about the fact that religious devotion places demands upon us. It threatens our autonomy. Here's my theory. I don't think religion or religiosity are really the problem. I think the problem is our lack of imagination. We get a set view of of how it is that we experience God and nearness to God and how God works in our lives and, and we make God subject to our feelings and we lose our ability to see God at work through things that seem outdated, that don't fill us in the moment, that don't go exactly the way that we want. This is precisely where I think Mary is such a sterling example for us in this text. Mary did not go through these religious rituals of circumcision and naming and purification and presentation and consecration simply because of societal pressure or obligation, though there was certainly some of that. She was religiously devout, I believe, because she believed that God was in the center of and working through these rituals. She believed that because God himself instituted this law that they are to follow, that he would show up in the midst of them. This is the imagination that I think we have largely lost in our culture. That God can and does work outside of our individually curated lives and routines. Mary models this for us. She and Joseph were religiously devout, following laws that were 1,400 years old at the time, and trusting that God would make himself known in the midst of them, certain that God was at the center of these rituals. And this is where the story gets really good. After their faithfulness to these religious rituals, we're introduced to two elderly characters in this story, Simeon and Anna. Simeon was a a prophet who looked forward to the Messiah And God had revealed to him that he was not going to die until he saw the Messiah face to face. So here, Simeon, also noted as a religiously devout person, finds himself in the temple at the exact time that Jesus is being dedicated and consecrated by his parents. And and it's revealed to him that this is the Messiah. And and he holds the Messiah in his hands. Go, go Go to the next slide, would you, Reuben? Look at this. He holds the Messiah in his hands. And he says the words that are so very satisfying to hear. Now, God, your servant can depart in peace. This is the nunc dominus. The church has been saying it ever since. Or to paraphrase, now I can die in peace because I've seen the salvation of the Lord in my very hands. 
He lays hands on Mary and Joseph, and he blesses them, and he tells them that this child is going to be a very special child. Anna, the prophetess, shows up in this story as well. Depending on how you translate this text, she's probably over 100 years old. And the text says that she was in the temple day and night, fasting and worshiping. This was her job. This is what she did every day. And she comes into the temple and she realizes the gravity of this moment as well. And she begins to tell everybody that would listen that this is the Messiah. There's so much to say about Simeon and Anna, especially for those of you who are older here this morning, our senior citizens. Incredible sermons to be preached. This is not the day for it because our focus is on Mary, but we'll, we'll put that one in the pocket and do it later, okay? Our focus is on Mary. As we look at this whole story, I want to make three points clear here to bring this all together. And the first is this. Mary is humbly obedient to religious rituals because she believes that God is in them. To experience God, we don't see Mary taking a walk through the woods or taking a personal day or focusing on meditation or taking a yoga class. She goes to the temple. She's obedient to what scripture says. And she does so humbly. She doesn't have a lot of money, but she still buys the sacrifice that she can. She was most certainly weary of travel. She had traveled a lot, but she still goes to Jerusalem. She doesn't see the, the, the rituals of, of circumcision or purity or, or, or naming or presentation or consecration as old and constricting. She expects that God is going to show up in the midst of these things. Her individual preference goes by the wayside. And she steps into something that's much larger. And if we want to follow Mary's lead, what should we do? Well, you've taken one big step. You came to church this morning. Congratulations for that. The author of Hebrews says, don't neglect the opportunity to meet together for worship, for fellowship. Our other ritual practices that the church has been faithful to are the sacraments of communion and baptism, confession of sins, time in God's word, a robust prayer life, giving sacrificially with our tithes and our offerings, honoring the Sabbath, and a commitment to Christian friendship. These are examples of things that can be empty for us. They can become empty rituals. But if we place God, if we place Jesus at the center of these, they are enlivened and God shows up. Which brings me to point number two. God did show up in these religious rituals for Mary. As Mary was faithful to these rituals, God brought Simeon and Anna to her to bless her to confirm all that the angel Gabriel had said to her. They spoke truth over her. They encouraged her. They helped her to feel cared for and not alone. God showed up. I know religion gets a, a bad rap, but honestly, when we show up day after day, obediently in these rituals, knowing that God is working within them, God will show up for us too. He will show up in your prayer life through answered prayer. He will speak to you in the midst of corporate worship like we're having right now. He will bless you through your sacrificial giving. He will reveal himself through scripture. He will bless you and confirm your faithfulness through the sacraments. God will show up. Third, and this is the most exciting one to me, 
is God used religion to bring stories of God's goodness together. Because of Mary's faithfulness to bring her child to the temple for dedication and consecration, which might seem like an empty ritual for us, just something you have to do, she allowed Simeon to die in peace. Think about it that way. She blessed a a, a 104, that's how old I think Anna was, a 104-year-old widow of over 80 years who was eagerly awaiting the Messiah her whole entire life. That happened because she was religiously devout. If Mary had been spiritual but not religious, Simeon and Anna might not have died in peace. When we join together in our fellowship here at church, or if you're visiting with us today, your local church, when we join together in prayer, in sacrament, in friendship, in fasting, in giving, we have these compound blessings where what God is doing in your life intersects with what God is doing in my life. This kind of religious devotion together, you know what it does? It kills individualism. Our tendency towards a privatized faith. Our sense that God is within me and works on my timeline. If we're spiritual but not religious, we never meet the Annas or the Simeons. We don't experience the compound blessings and neither do they. So again, for the fifth week in a row, Mary just amazes me at what an incredible faith model she is. I think she offers a a unique voice to our 21st century context and, and comes to defend religious devotion, to assault our individualism, to encourage us towards the healthiest form of a God-centered life where following the way of Jesus is what we're all about. As a pastor, I don't and can't know where all of you are today. Some of you might be sitting here and you're like, well, I classify myself as spiritual but not religious. If so, I'm really glad you're here. I'm proud of you for coming. And I hope that some of these words today maybe resonated with you and I'd love to talk with you more about it. I find myself overwhelmed with a culture that is spiritually minded, spiritually attuned, but suspicious of the church, suspicion of clergy, um, of anything that would threaten their own sort of individual way of experiencing God. What do we do in such a culture? Well, I, I will tell you one thing. We can't address these beloved people by shaming them for not being religious. <laughs> Nor can we water down our church life to be less religious lest we lose the potency of our witness. I think the best way forward in such a culture is to be humbly devout like Mary and to share with her in the ways that God shows up. As you consider New Year's resolutions in the days to come, what if you resolve to be more religiously devout? (laughs) Was that on your list? To be more religiously faithful like Mary to be faithful to church and and to share the story of how God is at work, to be faithful to prayer and to share with others how God answers prayer, to be faithful to read God's word deeply and then be ready to open up scripture and share with others how God shows up, to be faithful to Christian friendship and and, and be a real, true, Christ-centered friend to other people, to be faithful to give sacrificially and share with others how God blesses you in return. Remember what I've been saying all month. What does Mary do better than anybody else? She leads us to Jesus. 
And as we follow in her footsteps, I pray that we, through our own devotion, might lead others to Jesus as well. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that our prayers, our coming to church, our devotion to you can be empty. But Lord, if you're at the center of it, how could it be? You are the God who knows us and loves us. You are the God who works through imperfect systems. You are the God who loves us enough to speak to us through your word, through prayer, through worship. Lord, in a, in a world that looks at religious devotion with suspicion, I pray that we might humbly, silently, even in our own hearts, devote ourselves to you fresh and to rituals that keep you at the center of our lives. Would you give us eyes to see the ways in which you are already showing up? Will you give us hope in the ways that you will show up? And like Mary, may, may we be defined by a faithfulness to you. And Lord, I pray that we might receive the blessing of, of stories of your work intersecting together in this place, in our friendships, so that we might be in awe of the God who works through all things. We set our hearts on you, Lord. Amen.